0: Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access?
1: Scott, welcome to the final episode of the year.
2: Hi, Mark. It's great to be back with you again today. And boy, what a year it's been, huh?
1: It is. It has been a lot of fun. And we've been renewed for season two as well. So excited about 2024. Touch and go there for a while, I'm sure. (laughs) But before we introduce our guest, I do have to say that the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsors or any of its affiliates.
2: As usual. Well done, Mark. Thank you. All right. Well, now that we've got that behind us, we're thrilled today to have Rachel King, CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, with us today. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. And this year, we have really, you're our 13th interview. We've really interviewed a lot of people that are on-the-ground stakeholders, whether it's patients, providers even payers. And then we've interviewed those who sort of look across the industry, look across the spectrum, whether it's health economists, consultants, others. You're sort of someone who wears both hats. So can you share a little bit about yourself and about bio?
3: Sure. Sure. Let me start by just saying a bit about bio. Bio is the biotechnology innovation organization, and we represent the community of innovators. So these are the biotechnology companies, large and small, that are trying to develop new drugs and bring them to patients. And we've got about a thousand members. We advocate for policies that support that community. And we also convene that community through our annual convention, which is probably the thing that we're most known for from that perspective. But we also convene patient advocates. We convene state biotech associations, international associations. So really gather the community in ways that are, in many respects, just supportive of delivering these innovations to patients. As far as my own background, I actually came to bio as an entrepreneur. I've spent most of my career on the company side of things. So what we do at bio is not just theoretical to me. I've lived through it. I've lived through the challenges of raising money and trying to bring drugs to the market and to patients. I've actually served on the board of bio for many years and served as the bio chair about maybe 10 years ago for a couple of years. And so when BIO was going through their transition, maybe a year or so ago now, the board asked me if I would step in as the interim CEO to lead the organization during this period, which I've been delighted to do. It's been a wonderful opportunity to work with this incredible team. And I'm actually very happy now that just a couple of days ago we announced that John Crowley is going to be taking over as the permanent CEO of Bio, currently the executive chair at Amicus. And we're really thrilled that he's going to be stepping into the role. Also somebody coming very much from the entrepreneurial company perspective. And I think he's going to bring some important background and skills and perspective to the role. So very excited about him joining uh, in March. Yeah.
2: Great. Well, congratulations on all your time and efforts with bio, Rachel, and also on naming John. For this particular episode, it is kind of a year-end wrap-up for us. We've chosen to focus on the sustainability of innovation here. As Mark pointed out, we've had a number of conversations this year with guests, and one of the recurring themes in nearly all those episodes was the unintended consequences of even well-intentioned efforts to try to make things better. And in particular, Jamie Robinson, the health economist at Berkeley, who was in one of our early episodes, coined the phrase, the war of all against all. But this notion that the industry and the payers and the providers and everyone are just caught in this constant battle back and forth and tit for tat, positioning and repositioning. So Mark and I worry that as that continues and as the pricing and access of medicines continues to be more problematic and get worse, that innovation may eventually actually become unsustainable. And financially, obviously, is one way it could become unsustainable, but also politically and socially. So in any case, we'd like to just start off with that notion and ask you to share how Bio thinks about this, some of your priorities and the challenges that you see in maintaining, helping maintain an environment for innovation for the industry.
3: Yeah. So, there's a lot in that question. Uh, so, let me sure. start. And we'll spend some time walking around it. Yeah. So, at the highest level, you know, at Bio, we're very concerned to create and sustain an environment, kind sort of an ecosystem, an overall ecosystem that, that supports innovation. And I think it's also, it's important as we think about that, though, to recognize that that also requires meaningfully addressing the issue of patient access, right? So, I think that access and an meaningful access and innovation need to go hand in hand. And I think as a society, from a public policy perspective, we're constantly trying to find the right balance of those. Because if you had an environment that had nothing but incentives for innovation, but that did not address access, that would not solve the real needs that patients have. Similarly, you could stop innovation today, provide 100% access to everything that we currently have. And I think we would all agree that we would not have done our sufficient duty as humans to try to continue to improve our human conditions. I think we're constantly trying to balance those issues. So, I mean, there's a lot of specifics we can talk about in terms of some of the concerns, but I guess another general concept that I might put on the table before we get into some of the specifics is the idea that incentives really matter and that what public policy does and what the government does well is to create and establish incentives for how people then will behave. What the industry does well is respond to incentives. And I think that what we've seen in some of the well-intentioned legislation that's come out, but that has had bad consequences, is that we've ended up creating certain disincentives that are going to have negative impacts on innovation and or negative impacts on patient access, ultimately having negative impacts on patients' health, which is what we're all trying to, the issue that we're all trying to solve. So those are some general comments and we can talk specifics about particular aspects, but I would say that our core, what Bio is trying to accomplish is creating that ecosystem that supports innovation and ensuring that patients can get access to the drugs, meaningful access to the drugs and therapies that the industry develops in ways that will ultimately improve health.
1: So, Rachel, you mentioned the incentives, and I think that that's, for me, my career goes back in the late 80s. We had a front row seat to the reauthorization of the Orphan Drug Act, right? And remember the lack of discovery of rare disease drugs before that, and then the incredible success after the Orphan Drug Act. So what do you see in terms of like the current federal government's policies, priorities? Last year they implemented the IRA. What's your thoughts on what's going on there?
3: Yeah, so again, maybe take a high level view first and then we could dig into the orphan issue in particular, which is a really important one. So I think the political problem that we all need to solve and which the administration is trying to solve is this problem of patients appearing at the pharmacy, and getting drugs that their doctor has said they need and finding them too expensive, right? So that's a real political problem that we need to solve. And until that is solved, there's going to continue to be pressure on the innovation ecosystem in ways that sometimes is productive maybe, but sometimes is not, right? So what I think, again, is kind of an important maybe touch point for this debate is that we need to recognize that if a patient goes to the pharmacy and they have a $5,000 unaffordable copay. And if we force the price of a drug to be cut in half, the patient could still show up at the pharmacy and have a $5,000 unaffordable copay. We have not solved the problem of meaningful patient access by simply cutting the nominal price of the drug. So I want to acknowledge the real political problem, and I want to also acknowledge that that sometimes the solutions that the system kind of tries to drive for are not solutions that are actually solving the problem that that we all agree we need to solve. So with that as background, we can get into some of the specifics. So one of the things that administration tried to do, as we know, as an effort to solve this, is to introduce these negotiation provisions as part of the IRA and the IRA had a number of other provisions that, in various ways, tried to focus in the power of the government to drive prices down without necessarily addressing that problem of what the patient encounters at the pharmacy. And one of the things that they did in that context is to provide some disincentive to orphan drug development. So, getting into the orphan drug issue. More specifically, Mark, that you raised. I think as you alluded to, the Orphan Drug Act was a tremendous success. It was a great example of policymakers coming together and recognizing we got a problem to solve and finding a really good way to solve it by creating incentives that then drove the industry to develop a host of new drugs that have come to the market that have been tremendously beneficial to patients across a whole range of clinical problems. So that's been a, a great success. One of the things that the IRA has done is to pare that back. And it's one of the big concerns that we have at Bio around the IRA. It requires getting a bit into the weeds here, which I'll do, that as you may know, your listeners may know, that particularly in the oncology space, sometimes orphan drugs are developed for narrow oncology indication and then another narrow oncology indication and then another and another through a series of rare oncology, critical needs, because in many cases, it's the best way to demonstrate that the drug works. It's the most effective way to get the drugs quickly to patients in these high need, but smaller populations. And then maybe eventually the drug gets to a larger patient population. What the IRA did was to remove incentives for marching through that series of clinical indications over the course of drug development. So that's a big concern. It's one of the issues that we are concerned about with IRA. There is some light at the end of the tunnel potentially there. There is an act that's been introduced called the Orphan Cures Act, which amazingly has now bipartisan sponsorship in the House and the Senate, which in the context of the current political environment, I think really speaks to how important it is to solve this and the, and the important recognition that policymakers have now made that, and many of them share now that we, we need to solve that. So I think we're, we're beginning to chip away. We have the potential to chip away at some of the particularly egregious aspects of IRA, but just responding to your question on orphans, we need to align incentives with what we want to actually
2: achieve. So that's very interesting that there's already movement to potentially reverse that. Obviously, it's understandable. It's been called out. But it seems odd that the bill is passed with those provisions in it. And then almost immediately, a group of lawmakers are saying, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't have done that. How does that happen?
3: Well, it's not actually unusual that a law gets passed and then a law gets fixed. And I think it speaks to some of the kind of sausage making that happens with any piece of legislation. Again, I think there's a there's a lot of energy that lines up. And oh my gosh, that IRA was huge. As you know, it had it had a lot of provisions that have nothing to do with healthcare. So it's a huge bill, very complicated. I think a lot of interest in solving some real problems. And often I think we get unintended consequences when legislation passes. And I think actually it is really important from a political standpoint to accept that, recognize that and accept it so that for Democrats in particular, for whom... IRA is a, a critical piece of a hallmark, let's say, of legislative accomplishments. I think that the Biden administration will be touting in the campaign. So, for Democrats to think that there could be changes to be made to that, I think it's important to recognize that this happens with some regularity in Congress. Right, things get passed and then things get improved. So, I think we need to we need to help our Democratic colleagues understand that there are steps that can be taken that they can feel comfortable with, that will contribute to solving the problems that we all agree want to be solved.
1: If I could, Rachel, you talked about the political problem, which is obviously a very real problem around what happens at the pharmacy counter. And if a drug did get cut in half, it may not solve the problem for the patient. So help us understand that a little bit more in terms of like, where does drug pricing fit into the whole thing? Help us understand that perspective.
3: So that's really complicated. Unfortunately, as you guys well know, the pricing system in in the United States is so complicated. We actually, I can refer you to the bio website. We actually have some nice graphics that explain how drugs get paid for in the United States. But a lot of the prices that patients pay are determined more by the insurance company than they are by the drug company. Because insurance companies, and in particular through these pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs, determine what the patient actually pays at the pharmacy. And you may know that there's been an increase in concentration in the PBM industry now to the point where I think three PBMs control something like 80% of the prescriptions in the United States. So it's a great deal of power in the hands of very few organizations in terms of setting the price that the patient actually pays At the pharmacy. And there are some strange incentives. You've probably seen some recent articles that have described how PBMs are incentivized to actually get higher priced drugs sometimes on their formularies because they get a percent of the higher price. And so some patients have the ability to get higher priced drugs covered and not lower priced versions of the same drug. So it's a very strange set of incentives. So we've got to really shine a light on the way that the PBMs operate to ensure that the discounts that they negotiate actually go to patients. You know, their whole business model is supposed to be around efficiency of delivery of drugs to patients and cost efficiency, but it's clearly not happening. I think the simple message is that your drug price is determined by your insurance company, not so much by the drug company. And actually, the, the share of the pie that goes to drug companies is getting smaller and smaller, where the share of the pie that goes to these PBMs is getting larger and larger. So again, when we ask ourselves from a public policy perspective, what behavior do we want to incentivize and what actors do we want to reward? I think we need as a society to recognize we want to reward innovation, I think. And so we need to align those incentives certainly better
2: than they are now. Yes. And at the same time, though, as you know, affordability is a real challenge in the real world. And you can think of that as in terms of individual drugs or across the entire pharmacy benefit. And obviously, there were pricing provisions in the IRA, at least as it relates to government negotiations of pricing. So what's the industry's responsibility as it relates to helping to maintain the overall affordability, Rachel. How does Bio think about that?
3: Well, so drugs need to be priced ultimately in some way that reflects their value. That's what our system is all about. And so companies need to make the case that the drug prices do reflect the value. Over time, the way the system is supposed to work is that an innovator introduces a drug, Competition can come into the market through similarly designed drugs that perhaps go after a similar target, but with a different mechanism of that, or different different technical aspects to allow companies to address a similar biological mechanism. So you introduce competition, which affects price. Ultimately, drugs go generic which should drive down price. And most of the drugs in America now are sold as generic. So in the aggregate, that's how the system is supposed to work. You get a patent that protects the drug's price for some period of time. You get competition. Eventually, you get generic. And I think in in that context, too, a company needs to make a case for value. And you've seen, interestingly, actually, some of the independent groups that determine value have even sometimes seen very high-priced drugs actually do justify their price because of the value that they deliver. So at any given point in time, I acknowledge that there may be disconnects. We may not be getting it quite right. But over time, what the system is supposed to do is to reward innovation through the patents, eventually go generic, and while drugs are on the market, to force the industry, often through competitive dynamics, sometimes through negotiations with insurance companies, force the industry to make the case for value. So that's how it's supposed to work. And I think Largely, it does. I think we do have distortions. I acknowledge that. But largely, it's a pretty good system.
1: I would say it is a good system. And I think that the manufacturers have been not only vilified, of course, on their pricing, but they've also been the ones behind the scenes that are picking up doing all the support programs, all the free drug programs, all the copay assistance and other things that are out there. So they're picking up multiple costs. They're also shouldering the 340B discounts, which is becoming a bigger and bigger challenge. How do you see the role of the manufacturer in terms of those support programs that are necessary to be the safety net? How do you see those evolving over the next few years?
3: Well, as you know, some of those support programs have really come under attack, and there's some tension now between some recent court cases and what the administration's doing as to whether the companies are going to be able to continue to provide support for patients such that the co-pays could be potentially covered by the manufacturers and count toward the patient's deductibles. So we could have an interesting conversation about kind of the copay system here for a moment, which is, as we know, that patients have these copays, which I think, in theory, I think are in place to help patients make more rational decisions about their health care. I think when they were put in place, I mean, like you look at, Medicare Part D debates at that time, for example, there was the idea that patients needed to have what some people called skin in the game as if we don't have enough skin in the game with when our health is at stake right But the idea of these co-pays and deductibles is that somehow they'll help patients to make better decisions. I think if we were really designing the optimal system we would maybe not do it that way because ultimately what you want is the patient to sit down with the physician together to make a choice and then not to give any disincentive to the patient, not to put anything between that decision and the patient's ability to get the drug. What we have in our system, though, is the potential for a number of hurdles to be put in between that medical decision and the patient's ability to actually get the drug. And so we've seen some of the pharma companies, biotech companies, trying to remove some of those barriers by helping patients with the copays, with the deductibles, and then the policymakers trying to interfere with that. So it's a very convoluted system that I think does not line the incentives up right to, again, get us to most efficiently address the patient's healthcare needs. And we see problems with like with the you know the step these step programs where patients have to fail first on certain drugs before they can go to the drug that their doctor really recommends. Another kind of strange financial disincentive to deliver the right care. So, you know, I think the industry is going to continue to try to work to deliver our drugs to the patients who need them, and hopefully through the work of groups like Bio and, and patient advocacy organizations to help policymakers understand when they're putting inappropriate barriers in between that medical decision and the access to the drug.
2: Yeah. The payers and purchasers we've spoken with, they don't all feel great about the high deductible, high co-insurance kinds of models either, but they would say it's what's affordable. And so many folks feel like it's necessary to sign up for those benefit designs, oftentimes before they even really understand what it's going to mean, to your point. But then we've had some subsequent conversations with guests who have suggested that perhaps the right thing to do in this would be to have regulation or legislation that would address benefit design responsibility directly. Has Bio given any thought to that? Do you have a point of view on the role of policymaking as it relates to fair benefit design?
3: So I guess I would say that when we think about benefits around the whole healthcare system, I would acknowledge that we don't have an infinite Pile of money, right? So we need to think as a society how we're going to spend the amount of money that we have to deliver the best healthcare that we can. And I also acknowledge that we have one of the more expensive, maybe the most expensive healthcare system in the world without delivering the best outcomes in the world. So I think when we talk about benefits and and how we're delivering healthcare, we need to recognize that there are lots of pieces to that. It's not only drugs. And I think to look at the whole healthcare picture would be potentially productive. Let's look at what each of the aspects of the ecosystem contribute to healthcare or to healthcare outcomes. And so I think we're generally concerned about having legislators get too much into the details of benefit design from a macro perspective, because I think there's a lot of opportunities to get things wrong. And I think when we talk about particularly the fact that most of the patient dollars that they feel are going out of their own pocket or going after drugs. It makes policymakers tend to focus on the drug space when it's only something like fifteen percent of the total costs. So I think we have to be cautious about what could be done legislatively in terms of benefit design. But I think at the high level again we need to look at the whole healthcare picture and how drugs contribute to that healthcare picture overall, which I think would put actually the drug aspect in a very favorable light.
1: If I could we're we're in the End of 2023, headed into 2024, and futurists, others have talked about this as the biotech century, right? Like, what's ahead? And at the same time, to have the biotech century, right, for us to even get there and keep the incredible innovations that's coming out of the manufacturers going, you need a strong capital markets. And yet, I think I heard you say earlier that there's the challenges of the IRA and some of the disincentives how do you feel that the biotech industry and the capital markets are positioned for us to achieve this sort of century of the biotech?
3: Yeah, so again, a lot of different ways to attack that question. I think at the macro level, what we want to see is getting inflation under control so that growth stocks in general, growth companies in general, become good places for people to invest. And I think that will help to lift the tide of all gross companies, including biotech. Specifically, as far as biotech goes, then we wanna look at the, the kind of ecosystem around ensuring that there's a healthy environment for investment, healthy environment for MA. You know, We've also seen the FTC do some things in the past year that have concerned us in terms of allowing for that m a outcome, which is important to incentivize investment. Right now, there are a lot of companies, a lot of biotech companies that are really struggling. Then if you look at companies that have market caps that have come down, under $100 million market caps and cash positions that are not nearly as long a runway as companies would really like to have. There are a lot of companies that are struggling, You're seeing layoffs increasing in the industry. So from a capital markets perspective, it's a challenging time. We're kind of back where we were pre-COVID. There was some significant investment during the COVID and we're back where we were before that. I'm not sure if it's leveled off there or if it's you know where we're going to go from here but I'd say we're hopeful that we're going to see a turnaround but it's not going to be biotech alone that's going to turn around it's going to have to be that whole growth market sector of the economy I do feel ultimately optimistic and maybe that's I have to be an optimist to be in this line of work in biotech in, in general but in part because of the science that is making so many things possible and if you look at the novel types of therapies that have come onto the market recently, gene therapy, cell therapy, RNAi, antisense. We had the first CRISPR product approved in the UK recently for sickle cell disease. So the the scientific aspect is just so exciting. And now with potential applications for artificial intelligence, which I don't think are a panacea, but I think are going to be a really important tool. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. As long as we can get the ecosystem issues addressed, both from a policy standpoint in healthcare and from kind of a capital markets perspective. And I just add another thought on this, you know, because as I said at the outset, you know, I've, I've spent most of my life as an entrepreneur and I've pitched venture capital funds many times. And often sitting around that table are people who can put their money into biotech, which is expensive and takes a long time and is very risky. Or they could put their money into a new app, which is less expensive, it's going to take less time, might make them more money faster. So we have to acknowledge that investors are going to make rational decisions and we want to be sure they have the incentives to make decisions that drive investments in ways that as a nation we want them to go, which is... Investments in human health, I think, is a a critical element of that. So we do need to care about the capital markets very much. Ultimately, I'm an optimist and I think we're going to continue to deliver some wonderful innovations. Mm
2: -hmm. It really is a remarkable time in science and in technology as well and the growth prospects for innovation. If we have the capital, as you point out, Rachel, are, are just amazing. I started my career as a physician and even things now are like, were unimaginable, frankly, in those times. How about a slightly different angle on this? So as you've pointed out, all this is very complicated. There can be unintended consequences, even working at the policy maker, legislator kind of level. What's the view from Bio about the citizenry of our country and their level of awareness? And they have a lot at stake here, affordability and access to the medicines they need today, as well as the future of all this potential innovation. Is that something that bio thinks about or what do you think the role of the citizenry should be in this?
3: Yeah, so I think that's a really important question and it applies actually not just for biotechnology but for all kinds of technology. You know, we're in a technically very complex society and most of us, we have a fairly narrow window of what we understand. And so whether it's conversations about artificial intelligence or combinations about messenger RNA or antisense or something, you know, we have limited capacity as individuals to understand the technical complexity of the science around the world in which we operate. So it is a challenge. And I think what it speaks to is the need to try to educate and communicate in ways that are as simple as possible and meaningful. Right. So I think, most people don't care so much about whether the treatment is antisense or mRNA or monoclonal antibody, whatever. And most patients may not even be able to name what type of drug or what technology underlies the drug. But what they will know is whether there's a drug available that can treat the condition that they have or the condition that someone they love has. And so I think what we need to do is not so much communicate about the technology although that's important in certain settings as communicate about the benefit and tell patient stories and share patient stories because it's what drives a lot of us to get into the industry in the first place As you yourself as a physician I imagine we're we're driven by that and so I think we need to get back to that core of what we do and the core of what we provide which is benefits to patients so to me that's the most important story to tell and then with policymakers, of course, we need to get into the nuts and bolts of how to incentivize that, but ultimately really retain our focus on what is the benefit that we deliver to patients.
1: Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I started my career with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So to think that there's a drug that was in large part funded by the CF Foundation that is now available to treat 9 out of 10 patients and give them a healthy life. I know we're not done. We need to get to 100 of the patients that could be treated, but boy, what an amazing accomplishment in just a few decades. So I so I totally agree. It is at the end of the day, all about the patients. And so we wrap up all of our sessions, all of our interviews with a chance for you to put on your hat and come up with what is your prescription for better access? So Rachel, what is your prescription for better access?
3: It's a combination of matching innovation to access. And I think It's recognizing that we need to enable innovation and pair that with the work that we do on access. So let's not deliver access at the cost of innovation, because ultimately what we want to do is to continue to improve patients' lives, which is going to require that we do new things
2: and continue to innovate. Good. Well said. Well, Rachel, it's been a pleasure to chat with you a bit. I'm very keen to hear what my colleague Mark here, his reflections on the discussion today.
1: Oh, well, for me, this is a thrill to interview Rachel, to hear her perspective. She's an incredible spokesperson for the industry, but she also is one of those rare people that can bring it down to everyday language, right? So it's not just the scientific, it's actually like, how does this impact what this means for me? And that is so important. And I love her approach, even from the beginning, that this really has to be about access and innovation, that they have to go hand in hand. I know that's her prescription for better access but it also is the and again for me it's a 40 year career so i get to see the before the orphan drug act the or after the orphan drug act and now the ira and i understand it better than i have than i did before in terms of the orphan drug act put the a lot of the incentives in place and unfortunately the ira took out a lot of those incentives and so if it was as successful and it grew this incredible like mountain of if you look at the charts of rare disease discoveries after the orphan drug act it's incredible And if these disincentives have the opposite effect of decreasing that, it would be a shame. And it literally would, we would basically take the medicine cabinet we have in 2024 and close it and say, that's it. And that's a real shame. But I think she represented well, in terms of the manufacturers have the responsibility as well, that they're not shying away from it. They do have these programs, but that it's multiple parties that need to help solve this, this problem overall. How about you, Scott?
2: Yeah, well, it's obvious to me as well that Bio has been in great hands with Rachel during this interim period. And again, Rachel, congratulations on all you've done there. The notion about balancing affordability and access with sustainable innovation came through loud and clear, and the importance of that for me as well. This notion that incentives really matter, and the industry in particular is Well, practiced at figuring them out and following them, I think was a keen insight and certainly one that fits with my experience with the industry as well. I like the characterization of the political focus on the affordability experienced by patients at the pharmacy counter and how central that really is to what we're trying to solve for. I think that makes a lot of sense. And her notion, you know, and I think she's right that the system generally has worked well for a long time, that there's you know, innovation followed by some patent rights and pricing power and some returns to the innovator followed by branded competition and then genericization. And we should be very thoughtful about disrupting that in ways that are, again, not intended and result in loss of balance or worsening of the balance or whatever. Just a couple of other things that, I like this notion at the end that came up about telling the benefits of the medicines and of the industry generally, and telling patient stories, which I think is so foundational, really. It's, it is the way we all think about healthcare, and I think it's important that we keep that top of mind for us, but also when we're talking with one another as well. So anyway, great conversation, Rachel, and a lot of really great lessons from my
1: perspective here. Thank you.
3: Well, thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it.
1: Great, Rachel. Well, thank you. And again, this wraps up our 2023 first year of our podcast, Scott. So let me thank my wonderful partner, Dr. Scott Howe, for joining me in this adventure. Very excited about what we have for 2024. We already have some incredible interviews lined up. Hopefully we'll get John Crowley, the new head of bio, to join us as well. But from our point of view, I think the critical thing for us, for Scott and I, has been that we've hoped to educate, we've hoped to advocate, and we hope to inspire this year, we've worked really hard on the Educate, and hopefully next year, we'll be working more on some specific ideas and things that we can start to rally around to start to improve the things that we have ahead. So thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate the comments. We appreciate the feedback. Send your emails to comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. We'll have all the links to Rachel and to Bio and some of the legislation that she mentioned in the show notes. And let me just say, we wish everybody a safe and joyous holiday season and new year. And see everybody in 2024.
0: Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you.